0: Holy God, your blessings are abundant, and your wisdom exceeds our grasp. Fill us with your spirit as we hear your word this day, that we may be justice seekers and peacemakers, sharing your life among those who are forgotten, weak, or persecuted, and revealing to all your glory. Amen. The first reading today is from Micah, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Hear what the Lord says. Rise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the case of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O oh, my people, what have I done to you, and what have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember now what King Balak said of Moab, what Balaam, son of Baor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with the burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. The voice of the Lord, powerful and full of majesty. Thanks Thanks be to God. God.
1: To the Our gospel reading for this morning comes from Matthew chapter 5, the first 12 verses. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he began to speak and taught them Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, O Christ. Christ. Let's pray. Foolish God, shaming the strong, through the weakness of love turning upside down the wisdom of the world, may your blessing dwell with the poor and hungry, the grieving and abused, May your peaceful revolution be our joy and our reward. Through Jesus Christ, the power of God, we pray. Amen. The very first time I went to a counselor, he asked me what it was that I hoped to gain from our time together, and I told him that as I looked back on the timeline of my life, It seemed as though there was a story, and then there were these moments that stuck out in the timeline, like downed power wires, that if anybody got too close to those power wires, you'd get zapped. And what I wanted was to be able to tell a single story that drew a line through all the points of my life, including those live wires, that they could be integrated into a larger story how do you integrate the negative experiences of your life into a larger vision? That's what the Beatitudes are all about. Frankly, that's what the Gospel of Matthew is all about. That's what spiritual growth is all about. The Christians to whom Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew was originally written, lived in the aftermath of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD, a a disaster of indescribable proportions. The temple was the meeting place between God and the people. It's, it was the intersection between heaven and earth. It's the place where forgiveness of sins was assured, where God and humanity met, and now it was gone. Who are we now? If they were going to continue as a faith community, they needed to integrate this unexplainable loss, and we need to do the same in our lives as well like Moses before him, who led the people up Mount Sinai where they received the Ten Commandments, Jesus leads his people up the mountain where he speaks nine words words—a blessing that we call the Beatitudes. And you should know right up front, the Beatitudes are not if-then statements. Jesus is not saying, if you are poor in spirit, then you'll receive the kingdom of God. These are not recipes on how to get God's blessing. No, the Beatitudes are Jesus speaking blessings over people who appear to be anything but blessed. The poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, the persecuted. If these are blessings, they are blessings that no one wants to receive. And that's exactly the point. See, a blessing is something we normally understand as a gift that you want to receive in your life, right? And we are all blessed with all kinds of gifts, material, relational, spiritual. But what holds blessings together in our mind is that we recognize them as something to be desired. But no one wants to be poor in spirit. No one wants to grieve or mourn. And, and how about meekness? Uh, anybody ever say to you on a date, man, you are just so meek? No. No. See, the problem with the Beatitudes is that they don't appear to be blessings at all. In fact, if you were to tell someone else, I know that you've just lost your loved one, but I want you to know just how blessed you are. Well, that'd be just wrong, wouldn't it? Surely Jesus isn't doing that, so something else must be going on. Well, the Bible emerges from what we call an honor-shame culture. And honor and shame are understood to be positive and negative values that are conferred by the community. Honor is something that individuals within that community, they can aspire to it, but you can't get it yourself. Only the community can bestow honor upon you. And the opposite of honor is shame, wherein the community looks upon you with disapproval. These are social values given to you by others, and that's how they are to be distinguished from self-esteem, right? Self-esteem is how an individual feels about themselves. Honor and shame is how the community feels about you. And so a scholar named Casey Hansen, he takes this framework of honor and shame and places them on the Beatitudes, and he translates Jesus' words here as, how honorable are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I think that's exactly right. Because it's not my job, uh, it's not your job to say to other people who are struggling, you know what, you may feel as though your world is falling apart, but actually, you're blessed. And that doesn't help anyone, not even if it comes from Jesus. But to honor those who are hurting, to honor those who are grieving, that makes all the sense in the world. One of the great privileges of my job as a pastor is being with people when they are hurting, whether it's in the living room, the hospital room, or on their deathbed. And in these tender, sacred spaces, one thing I never do is suggest to other people how they should feel, or to tell them how blessed they are. That's not my job. But I can honor... Your struggle and your grief. I can tell you how much I respect you and how, when I'm with you in these moments, it's like having one foot inside of heaven because to be near you in this time is to stand on holy ground. That's what Jesus is doing in the Beatitudes. He's not telling us how to feel, He's not trying to cheer us up. His blessings speak honor over those who are vulnerable, shamed. And dishonorable. He is telling us that those moments in our lives that we wish we could erase, God honors those too. They belong too. It's not that you wish them upon yourself or upon other people, and it's not as though God wishes them upon you, but God respects your suffering. And so can we. See what the Beatitudes are they are a container, this container that is large enough to fit life's most difficult experiences. And within them, we discover that our our pain has its place. It belongs too. It can be integrated into a larger story, the human story, which includes poverty of spirit, sorrow, humility. If we don't push our pain away, but if we can somehow sit with it and honor it, then we discover that our struggle actually connects us to one another. This past Tuesday, I attended an interfaith justice breakfast with clergy colleagues from across the city, and we met at the Church for All People on Parsons Avenue. Any of you know this church, Methodist Church down there? It's an incredible place. Uh, And as I was walking into the church to meet these other clergy, you've got all these people, poor people, lining up for the warming center, because during the day in the cold months, their sanctuary is a warming center for those who don't have a place to go. They are an emergency shelter at night when the weather is cold. They have a free store for clothing and a market for fresh vegetables. And, and the whole time that I was there, there were all these people lined up for all of these activities. And the pastor of the church is a recently transitioned transgender woman, and she welcomed us all to her church and invited us to stay after our meeting so that we could spend some time with what she said are the people that Jesus calls blessed. See, that's what the kingdom of God looks like here on earth. Last week I told you that perhaps an easier way to understand the kingdom of God is to see ourselves connected to the one universal human family, to take our place in the kinship of all creation. That God's kingdom is a kingdom in which we are connected to one another. And nothing has the capacity to connect us to each other quite like suffering. Because despite all of our appearances, all of us are struggling in one way or another. And instead of using our pain as an excuse to lash out at others, kingdom vision recognizes that struggle is at the heart of what it means to be human that it connects us to the great kinship of humanity. See, if we live long enough, we will all go through times in our lives that don't make any sense. They stick out like live wires threatening anybody who comes near them. And Jesus, in His very first teaching, wants us to know that those experiences and those people that we consider shameful can all be integrated into the story that God is telling the story in which everyone has a place and everything belongs. It is not a simple or a quick fix. But if we can learn to stop pushing away our pain, if we can learn to stop denying our pain, if we can sit with it and and breathe, we will see that it is through the chaotic imperfections of our lives. It is through our humiliations and our heartbreaks. These are the cracks through which the light of grace enters into our lives. So blessed are the poor in spirit, for there's the kingdom of heaven. To be poor in spirit is to be empty inside. It describes those times of your life when you've had nothing left to give. And that's when grace finds you. You see, grace, just like nature, abhors a vacuum. And it comes to you when you need love most. Those times in your life where you felt furthest from God, Jesus blesses those times too. So you might know that nothing can separate you from God's love. Nothing. Nothing. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This one actually makes sense to me. To mourn is truly a blessing. Because it is only those who have loved and lost who know the honor of mourning. And to never mourn means that you have never known love. And that would be the greatest tragedy of all. So Jesus honors your mourning. He doesn't tell you to cheer up or to move on. He joins you in your grief. For there is no love without grief. And love is what connects us all. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Kingdom vision reveals that mercy is at the heart of all things. Richard Rohr says of this verse, We do not attain anything by our holiness, but by ten thousand surrenders to mercy. A lifetime of received forgiveness allows us to become mercy. That's the beatitude. We become forgiveness because it is the only thing that makes sense to us. The only thing that's alive within us. Mercy becomes our energy, our meaning. God is mercy itself. And we live our lives surrounded by the great mercy that holds all things together. It is our energy, our meaning. When we're young, we think that life is, in one way or another, about getting what we want. We think that blessings are about accomplishing our plans, about avoiding pain, achieving success. But if we live long enough, and if we follow Jesus far enough, we learn that you cannot avoid the negative. You can deny it, but you can't avoid it. And while you don't wish suffering upon anyone. The truth is we never really mature until we really suffer. The God revealed in Christ is a God who sees our hurts and our humiliations and honors them. A God who isn't afraid of the live wires sticking out on the road of our lives, but has the courage and the know-how to reconnect them to the grid of our humanity. And so, beloved, your suffering, it is not an aberration, nor is it shameful. Your pain connects you to the great web of life, the kinship of all creation. May God grant you the grace to see that everything belongs. Let's pray. Great God of mercy, mercy that holds all things together. You have laid before us a path of wholeness. You have called us to true community, to love and to care for one another. You've given us the gift of relationships that we might help and support one another. And all creation reflects the overflowing of your love. There is no prayer that we may offer that is not already close to your heart. And so we offer our prayers knowing that you hear them. And we offer them in the hope that in speaking them aloud, our hearts might be renewed in love for all that you have made. We pray for your good earth, O God. Where we have contributed to the ravishing of your creation, we pray forgiveness and awareness. Give us the desire to live wisely as good stewards, taking only what we need, rather than blindly and foolishly squandering what is not ours to begin with. We pray for all who are caught up in the bind of economic hardship. We pray for those suffering unemployment and underemployment. We pray for those waiting in fear to see what their future will hold. Ease our anxiety, O Lord, and remind us of the care with which we are held. We pray for our own community. If we are blind to the station of our neighbors, needle our consciences and stir us to action where we may be of service, O God, lead us and give us the strength to follow you. Open our eyes to the people experiencing homelessness and hunger, to the people living with addiction, to those who suffer from mental and emotional illness, to those who have been outcast. We pray for the victims of violence, gun violence in particular. Lord, help us to bring about your shalom. We pray today for the people of Memphis, shattered by the killing of Tyree Nichols. In anger and in grief we cry out, O Lord, how long? How long must your people be brutalized and killed by those who have sworn to serve and protect? Lord, bring justice to our police. Bring justice to our streets. That no more killings take place in our city or any other. Finally, we pray for those that we love who are in need of your healing presence. For Sarah Starr as she recovers from surgery. For Charlie Bergman as he prepares for it. For Michael Andrews. For Jeff Dubois. Nancy Kalman. For Nancy Jenkins. For three-year-old Miles who has a brain tumor and is scheduled for surgery. And for a friend who is close friend died yesterday. And for all of those that we carry with us in our hearts today whom we lay before you now praying that your mercy might comfort them. All these things we pray in the name of Jesus Christ who stands with us in our struggle and in our joy who knows us in our mourning and in our celebration, and who taught us to pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation,